From a secret location in room 100 of 540 Jack Gibbs Boulevard, this is Craft. I'm your host, Doug Dangler. Jennifer Cheverini is the successful author of, by my count, over 30 books, including Mrs. Lincoln's Dressmaker, The Spy Mistress, and Mrs. Grant and Madame Jewel, a book we discussed on this show in March 2015. Cheverini will return to Columbus for the Ohio Anna Book Festival on April 8th. More information is available on the Craft website at crafttheshow.com. Welcome back to Craft, Jennifer Cheverini. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, you were in a similar but slightly earlier time than with Mrs. Grant and Madame Jewel, although there's probably quite a bit of overlap. Uh, it's around the Civil War in this exploration of John Wilkes Booth right before the assassination of Lincoln. You've chosen four of the women closest to Booth, his mother, sister, secret fiance, and Confederate confidant. What sparked your interest in this uh, topic? Well, I had written several novels that had dealt with either the antebellum era or the Civil War era before, and especially in one of the books you mentioned, Mrs. Lincoln's Dressmaker, I had included President Abraham Lincoln as a character, and he was seen through the eyes of Elizabeth Keckley, uh, the heroine of that story. And so in that book and some of my other novels, I, w- I talked about President Abraham Lincoln's assassination and its effect upon the nation and upon people who were close to him and admired him, his wife and then Mrs. Keckley and then his General Grant. But as I was working on some of these novels and reflecting upon some of them, it occurred to me that I never had really shown the spotlight on the infamous man responsible for all of this grief in this circle of President Lincoln's admirers and all of this upheaval in the still-divided United States after the assassination in April of 1865. And so I, I was wondering, well, was there some reason why I was avoiding just directly looking at him? And I think part of it was because I'm such a great admirer of Lincoln. Maybe on some level I didn't want to delve too deeply into the mind of the person who ended that life. Because I always thought it was such a uh, such a tragedy that Lincoln had given so much of himself himself to trying to end the war, and he was planning to be merciful to the states in rebellion. His entire goal in those last months of the war was to try to bring the nation together in, in healing. He was not a punitive person. He was not planning to be... Um, a malicious victor. He wanted it all to be about bringing the country back together. And I just thought how tragic it was that he didn't get the chance to follow that through. And he also never had the opportunity to enjoy a single day of the peace that he had worked so hard and given so much of himself to achieve. Mm -hmm. So I think that haunted me. And, um, but, you know, sometimes that's the job of a creative person is to explore some of those things that are the most painful and that are the most disturbing, um, you know, instead of staying in the safe little cozy spaces of, of, your, of your thoughts in life. So I really wanted to, uh, to look at John Wilkes Booth and to see how does someone become the person who would assassinate this particular president or, you know, anyone, but... I didn't necessarily want to do it from John Wilkes Booth's perspective. Um, other, other authors have done that and have done that very well. But in all of my novels, I, I like to draw out narrators who tend to be more marginalized individuals. They tend to be people who 
are maybe in the footnotes of the official historical record if they make it into the narrative of all at all. Of course, we know they were there. Women, pe- people of color, the poor. But they're usually kind of, you know, maybe mentioned in the footnotes if you get, if you get their story, any of it. So I decided to focus on the women in John Wilkes Booth's life and to try to see from their perspective how he grew from being this very beloved boy, this beloved son, this, this cherished brother, and how he grew from that to being someone who was so far from the values of his own family that, and, and would commit this, this heinous act in those in those last days of the Civil War. Tell me about the arc that you saw through the characters on how Booth went from that very favored status and being a successful, as I understand it, actor, to you know planning this act, which he knew was going to destroy his own world along with so many others. Well, he had to have known, although he did think that he was going to be a lot more celebrated, especially in the South, than he actually was. But one of the best resources I had for uh, writing this novel was the uh, memoir left behind by his sister, Asia. One, he had two sisters and several brothers, and Asia was the sibling he was probably closest to. And she wrote a memoir of their family and what uh, what he was like as a boy and how she saw him changing into this southern firebrand who you know held held very close to his heart all the values of southern gentility that wasn't what he had grown up with at all and the more i read about keeping in mind that you know she loved him very dearly and she was not perhaps the most objective source right. but even when keeping that in mind I realized that if I want to tell his story, if I really want to understand how he became the assassin, because no one's born an assassin, if I really wanted to understand that, I needed to understand his family. I needed to understand what, where he came from, what his parents' relationship was like, and what might have happened to him along the way to get to the point where he, he was in April of 1865. And so I had to delve a lot into the history of his parents and their very unusual relationship. His father was this um, tremendously celebrated uh, Shakespearean actor, um, Junius Brutus Booth. And he was incre- he was a genius by all descriptions, but he was also uh, a severe alcoholic prone to depression, prone to some violence. And when I, when I struck upon that, I thought, now this is going to be a key to who he was, to who John Wilkes Booth was, and uh, how he became the person he, he grew up to be. Mm-hmm. I was really surprised to read that he was from an abolitionist family. Um, it, it never even occurred to me, I guess, in all the stories that, that he would have been, been raised like that. Yes, I was similarly very surprised. I just assumed that he came from a southern slaveholding family, and this was what he grew up with, and this was what he knew. And I was very astonished to learn that um, his father was 
astonishingly egalitarian. He was an abolitionist. He believed in, he was very kind to the poor. He believed that everyone was equal. He would often be walking down the streets of their home in Baltimore, in, in Baltimore and if he saw uh, a homeless person without shoes, he would give the person his own shoes and his own coat, invite him home for dinner, and he would sit at the table and eat with the family. And that that was so amazing to me to discover that this was what he grew up with. His father had such a reverence for life that he would not allow any animals to be killed on the grounds of their farm out in rural Maryland. Now, the the family kind of got around by this by poaching off the neighbor's land because... And, <laughs> In this way, they got the meat that they wanted, but they were holding to the letter of their father's law. Right. But his father was, was very erratic, even though John Wilkes Booth absolutely revered him um, as this genius of the stage. But unfortunately, his father died when he was only 14 years old. And that threw the family into poverty and uncertainty and the loss of that father figure, we have to, we have to believe that his life would have turned out very differently if he had been able to have maybe some more of that guidance along the way and didn't have the, you know, as erratic as his father was, as difficult as it was to have this mad genius, as everyone, everyone described him, uh, as a parent, the sudden loss of that, that revered figure and that provider just, I think, abruptly shifted the direction that John Wilkes Booth's life path took. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've always wondered about when you're writing fiction, uh, historical fiction, you're putting characters on the page and you're you know, doing a lot of research and then sort of imagining what they would have said in a situation, is uh, you're working here, especially with people who've been portrayed in a lot of different media. And do you find yourself having, say, the voice of Daniel Day-Lewis in your head when Lincoln speaks? How do you get around <laughs> that sort of influence that's just so pervasive about this era and many of these people? Um, well, most of my information about Lincoln comes from, I mean, there's just a multitude of writing about Lincoln. I, I, I don't believe anyone could ever in an entire lifetime if this was all they devoted themselves to, I don't think anyone could read everything written about Lincoln. Um, so, no, I didn't really have that particular voice in my head. I, I try to focus on, um, you know, nonfiction sources. I try to look at um, primary documents as often as I could. And in particular, forgetting Lincoln's voice, he left so many beautiful writings that uh, you can really get a good sense of his voice. And so many people left memoirs of knowing him that that fleshes out the whole sound even more. Um, but with John Wilkes Booth, I, I, I steered away from the fictional portrayals of him. I focused on nonfiction sources, Asia's um, description of him, and then other ones too. But I did, I always have to think very carefully about the source. Because the people in the 1800s were not very different from, from people today. And when something notorious like this happened, everybody suddenly had a memoir to, to put out there to talk about their connection to the notorious John Wilkes Booth and how they knew him and, oh, the stories from childhood. So there was a lot of just very outlandish, hardly at all credible stories that I had to kind of weed through to try to get to 
what seemed to be more credible. But really, there's so much out there about John Wilkes Booth. Um, not, not as much as Lincoln, but it is. It does become a difficult task to try to separate, you know, the the valuable sources from those that are maybe a little bit more questionable. So the Civil War fake news is what you were uh, yes. shifting through, uh, sifting Indeed. through. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. But you know, newspapers of the era, actually, in in all of my. Uh, historical fiction. Newspapers of the era are incredibly valuable because they don't always have the correct facts, not all, not because they're trying to put forth fake news, although certainly some of them did, but because then as now, sometimes you have to go to press before you have all the details, mm-hmm. before the whole story gets in. So if I can look through a newspaper uh, published in the days immediately following the assassination, that gives me a very good idea of how my characters were learning about the search for John Wilkes Booth, the various rumors that had him in Canada, the various sources that said, oh, he had already been shot in a, on a Virginia farm and, and all these kind of things. That really helped me to understand how, especially his mother and sister, would have been experiencing the shock and the horror of knowing that this person that they loved had suddenly overnight become the most hated man in America. And so those period newspapers give me a very good sense of how my characters were acquiring information and how they were dealing with false rumors and finally trying to get to the truth. You know, one of the characters that seems to be maybe the hardest to access in some ways is Lucy Lambert Hale, because, uh, you know, in various ways, she was, I think, regarded as perhaps the secret fiance of Booth. And um, she's also regarded as not knowing much about his plans. And this came as a shock to her in a way that I think his family must have known sort of how he felt. Right, right. His family knew how he felt. Uh, I don't think any of them would have guessed that he was capable of murder. I don't think they, they, I don't believe that they ever, it ever occurred to him that for all of his fiery speeches and all of his denunciation of Lincoln in the privacy of their homes, I don't think they ever could have imagined he would do something like this. Now, Lucy is a little bit tricky, in part because her father, after the assassination, I mentioned that a lot of people came out later with memoirs of how they knew it and what their connection to the story was. Well, a lot of people wanted to divorce themselves from having any, had any knowledge of him whatsoever. And a lot of that was because they, they faced severe repercussions by having an association with him. Actors were were threatened by crowds. Everyone associated with Ford's theater was immediately deemed suspect. Handsome, dark-haired men began to fear for their lives because all it had to do, someone, oh, there's John Wilkes Booth, and a, a mob would emerge. And it was, so people were like, I did not, not know him, never met the guy, and so there was a lot of that. And think of yourself, if you were the parents of someone who had been romantically involved with the most hated man in America, you'd probably want people to think, nope, my daughter had absolutely nothing to do with this guy. <laughs> and so her father, if, according to you know, a lot of sources, did everything he could to put pressure on the news, uh, newspapers to 
quash this story, to disavow any rumors that they, they even knew each other, whereas people in Washington had seen them together, so of course they knew each other. But um, some newspapers immediately obeyed and fell in line with this powerful former senator's desires, but a lot of other ones refused, and they said, no, they knew each other, and, and they said, hey, they probably were even engaged. But because her father did so much to try to silence this sort of talk, which could ruin his daughter's reputation, well, he largely succeeded. So there are big gaps in the historical record where Lucy is concerned. But I think one thing that we will probably never know, but we should certainly wonder, is if John Wilkes Booth ever really loved Lucy at all if he ever truly cared about her, or if this senator's daughter, who admired President Lincoln very much and was close friends with his eldest son, Robert, if she was simply a means to an end, if he just saw Lucy as a way to get closer to the president. Because she certainly did get him some access. She got him tickets to a particular speech got him very close to the president in a special viewing area uh, and and things of that sort. So Mm -hmm. I think Lucy probably wondered herself whether he ever truly loved her. And, you know, I can't, I, I, I tend to be very doubtful that, uh, especially because he had an extracurricular love life uh, (laughs) at the whole, the whole time he was supposed to be engaged to Lucy. I kind of doubt the sincerity of his affections. Um, it's it's hard to believe a uh, uh, a handsome actor would have you know a lot of different uh, relationships uh, in the way that he is reputed to have uh, been found with five different women's photos uh, in his pockets. Now you know some of those some of those pretty actresses could just be work friends. You know we don't know, but there were other people. There were reports in the in the newspapers about. Uh, former lovers or perhaps current lovers who, one in particular, who, um, a prostitute who deeply loved him, who took poison and attempted to commit suicide when she heard that he had been killed. And this story was in the newspapers and it was verified by other sources. And uh, I can't imagine that Lucy didn't see that newspaper report. It was in the Washington press. She would have seen it. But... um, you know, I can imagine her pain and how she felt at discovering that he had all these other relationships going on when he was supposed to be devoted to her. Wow. In addition to everything else, like, you know, assassinating a president. This was just more, <laughs> yeah, you know, a, more. President, a president that she very much admired, her friend's father. So I, whereas there is not so much in the historical record about Lucy imagining what her experience would have been like was very compelling to me and that's why I made her one of the narrators of this story well it's a great story and I really appreciate you talking to me about it today again you'll be in Columbus Ohio for the Ohio Anna Book Festival on April 8th and people will be able to talk to you and learn more about this story and buy your books and all that great stuff I'm looking forward to it Hey there, craft listeners. Like what you just heard on the show? I'll host a live show at Wild Goose Creative on Tuesday, April 18th at 8 p.m. I'll have live readings of original short stories, a live interview with Lena Maria Ferreira, 
book giveaways, music, and anything else it can cram into it. That's Tuesday, April 18th at Wild Goose on Summit Street. More information is available at CraftTheShow.com. <laughs>